All right, good morning. Glad to see you on this first Sunday in September, Labor Day weekend. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts. We are actually finishing our series this morning in the book of Acts. Next week, we'll be in the book of Philippians. We'll be there through Christmas, but this morning, we are in the book of Acts one last time. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people to study your word. As we've just sung about, you are a faithful God. And one of the ways that you've demonstrated your faithfulness, faithfulness to us is by revealing, us, revealing yourself to us through your word. You're faithful to communicate to us through your word. Every time we open it, we have an expectation that you will speak. Our prayer this morning is that you do just that, that you would speak that in the midst of the chaos of life. I know that there are some who come in here this week just feeling overwhelmed by the burdens of life. Lord, we pray in the midst of that you would speak this morning. God, help us to fix our eyes on you, to remember that you are a faithful God, that we can trust. And so God, now as we open your word, we pray that you would minister to us in a powerful way. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So we have indeed reached the final sermon in our series on the book of Acts. It has been a long journey. By my count, this will be the 46th sermon in the series. We started all the way back on September 12th of 2021, which, if I'm honest, feels like a decade and a half ago. And yet here we are now, September 4th, 2022, finishing up. Now, I should say this for the record, I'm very thankful for our time in the book of Acts, even though I was out of the preaching rotation this summer, preparing to preach the book of Acts and listening as others have been preaching in this book has been extraordinarily valuable for me personally. There have been multiple times where I've been preparing a passage, particularly in the last couple of weeks, where I've been preparing and I've thought, this is exactly the text that I needed this week. So I'm thankful that we've had the time that we've had in the book of Acts, even if it has been a really long time. But having said that, I think one of the challenges of a series like this one, one that goes on for a period of time, is that as time goes on, we can start to lose sight of the big picture of the book. For example, I know everyone here probably works really hard to commit every sermon to memory. You probably listen 10 or 15 times, make sure I'm getting every last word down. Maybe not, but even if you did that, I'm guessing you would still have a hard time remembering what happened all the way back in Acts 3, because it's been a really long time since we've been in Acts 3. Because that's the case, I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the overall trajectory of the book, in particular because the last half of the book has been primarily focused on Paul. It would be easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that really Acts is a biography of Paul's life, or for that matter, the other apostles. But as we said all the way back in week one, while the book of Acts has been traditionally labeled as the Acts of the Apostles, that's a misleading title. Because the book of Acts is not ultimately about Paul or Peter or John or any of the other apostles. It's about the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit in his people to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And actually, our passage today, which is again the final passage in the book of Acts, reminds us of that reality. Well, Paul has undoubtedly played a major role in the book of Acts, and especially the last half of the book. The book of Acts ends in a very anticlimactic way as it relates to Paul's story. For roughly the last quarter of the book, Paul has been on his way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And so as we get closer to the end of Acts, it's natural that we start to wonder, well, will he stand trial? What will happen to Paul? Will he be found guilty? Will they release him? Will they execute him? What will be the outcome? And then you get to the end of the book of Acts and you realize those questions are never answered. 
We never find out what happens to Paul. Did he get released? Did he get executed? We don't know. Now, church tradition would tell us that Paul did indeed stand trial before Caesar, that he was released, then later rearrested and executed. But the point is, the book of Acts does not tell us this. If Paul were the main character in the book of Acts, then the way the book of Acts ends would be the equivalent of never finding out what happened to Frodo in the ring in the Lord of the Rings. It's disappointing. Right? If the book of Acts is about the apostles and specifically Paul, you'd have to say this is kind of a dud ending. But actually, actually, I think that's the point. The book of Acts is not about Paul. It's not about the apostles. It's about the ongoing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, through his people, to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And given that reality, then it makes sense that Paul's story doesn't necessarily come to a tidy conclusion here. Because the book of Acts is not about him. It's about the ongoing work of God. It's about a gospel message that keeps advancing. And it's that gospel message that actually takes center stage in Acts 28 today, which is appropriate given the overall message and theme of the book. And so my prayer this morning is simply this, that we would not leave here disappointed because we don't see what happens to Paul at the end of his life, but rather that we would leave here this morning encouraged and challenged and remembering the main theme of the book of Acts, that Jesus is still at work through his Holy Spirit in his people to advance the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. The gospel is still marching on. So that said, if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time in the book of Acts, Acts 28, 17 to 31. If you're physically able, standing is a simple way that we can show our reverence for the Word of God. So Acts 28, 17 to 31. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they'd gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they'd examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there is no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, with, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For these, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So again, I think there might be a temptation this morning, even for us to read this last section in the book of Acts, as if it is a biographical sketch about Paul's life. We could read this and say, well, Paul was in Rome, or Paul met with Jewish leaders, or Paul kept proclaiming the gospel, or Paul lived under house arrest for two years, or Paul continued to welcome all who came to him. 
But to read Acts 28 in that way, as if Paul is the main character here, is to forget the overall trajectory of the book. And I think it's to miss the main point of the passage today. Acts 28, 17 and 31, what we just read, is not primarily about Paul. It's primarily about a gospel message that continues to advance through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so to that end this morning, my plan is not to focus on Paul or lessons we can learn from his life, but rather, I simply want to remind you of three truths about the gospel message, because it's the gospel that takes center stage here. One truth that we're reminded of in this passage is that the gospel message is for all people everywhere. Gospel just means good news. What we're saying is the good news about Jesus is for all people everywhere. We see this beginning in verses 17 to 22. Verse 17, after three days, he, being Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they'd gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they'd examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there's no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, two things are obvious here, I think, in verses 17 to 22. One is that Paul is for the Jewish people. Although it's Jewish leaders primarily who had him arrested and thrown into prison, he has no charges to bring against them, nor does he have any animosity. He is for them. In fact, he wants them to know that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, which is the second obvious thing in verses 17 to 22. The main thrust of what Paul is doing is he's trying to get the Jewish people that he cares for to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. To use language from Paul in verse 20, Paul is in chains because of the hope of Israel. The people of Israel had been waiting for a Messiah, and Paul desperately wants his Jewish brothers to know that Jesus is that Messiah. He is the hope of Israel. This point becomes even clearer in verse 23. Verse 23, when they'd appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So from morning to evening, Paul opens the Old Testament scriptures. He preaches the law of Moses and the prophets, and he's trying to help his Jewish brothers understand that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the hope of Israel. But he's not just the hope of Israel. He's the hope of all people, which is something that Paul makes clear in what he says in verse 28. In the middle section there, he kind of talks about the Israelites rejecting the message. And then in verse 28, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. One of the major themes of the book of Acts is that the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not just good news for the people of Israel, although it is good news for the people of Israel. But it's also good news for the Gentiles. Gentiles, in this case, meaning all non-Jewish people. Now, for the Jewish people, the idea that Gentiles would be included in the saving work of the Messiah was a revolutionary idea. That's why Peter's encounter back in Acts 10 with Cornelius was such a a, a, a momentous shifting event in the book of Acts. Because from that point forward, we see that the gospel is advancing to the Gentiles. Peter comes to realize that Cornelius and all Gentiles have been included in the gospel message. And from that point on in the book of Acts, Luke who's the author of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is relentless in driving home this message. 
that the good news of Jesus' death on the cross and the good news of his subsequent resurrection is not just good news for the people of Israel, although Jesus is the hope of Israel, but it's also good news for the Gentiles as well. Or to say it more succinctly with broader application, the gospel message is good news for all people everywhere. Jew or Gentile, male or female, black or white, rich or poor, young or old. It's good news for all people. And it's vitally important that we keep that reality in mind. A couple weeks ago, one of the missionaries that our church supports, Edward Mupata, came and gave us a report on the ongoing work of the gospel on the continent of Africa. The value of that visit was not just that we learned about things happening in Africa, although that was great, but the visit was also valuable because Edward's presence served as a tangible reminder to us. The gospel is good news for all people everywhere. I mean, let's just be honest here for a second. The person living in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, and the person living on a farm near Fremont, Nebraska, probably don't have a lot in common. I would guess they do not eat similar foods. They don't wear similar clothes. They don't live in similar houses. And I doubt that the guy living in the slums in Nairobi has been losing sleep wondering why have the Huskers lost so many one-score games the last couple years. So the person living in Nairobi and the person living in Fremont, they just don't have a lot in common, do they? But you know what they do have in common? Both are image bearers and both need rescued from their sin. And here's the good news of the book of Acts. Through Jesus' death on the cross for our sin and through his subsequent resurrection, both the person living on the farm in Fremont, Nebraska or the person living in the slums in Nairobi, Kenya can be rescued. If only they will turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Because the gospel is good news for all people everywhere. And the gospel unites people across these boundaries that seem like they're boundaries that cannot be crossed. I think that's especially important to keep in mind, too, because we live in a world that seems to be increasingly fractured and fragmented. Maybe it's because of social media, or maybe it's because we politicize everything, or maybe it's because Satan is just really good at sowing seeds of discord. But whatever the root reason may be, it seems that we are extraordinarily divided as a culture. But while that may be the case... I think we need to remember something. Division is nothing new. Even in the book of Acts, there's this division between Jews and Gentiles. Even among certain segments of the Jewish population, there's division. There are certain segments of the Gentile population, there's division. So in our current culture, we may feel like there are walls that divide us, and I think there are. But listen, those walls are not, are not new. And to use the language of Ephesians 2, in his flesh, Jesus broke down the dividing walls of hostility. So whether Jew or Gentile, Kenyan or American, Republican, Democrat, black, white, rich, poor, young, old, again, the gospel is good news for all people everywhere. And the challenge for us is that we should live as if that reality is true. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to care about the person who lives across the ocean. We think, well, they, they live over there. They're not really any of our concern. For that matter, I think sometimes it's hard for us to care about the person who lives across town across the tracks that maybe doesn't look like us or talk like us or think like us. But my prayer for this church is that we would be a church that lives as if we really believe the gospel is good news for all people everywhere, whether those people live across the ocean or across the tracks. I hope that we would be a church that cares whether the man in Pakistan hears about Jesus Christ or not, that we would have a longing for the woman in Yemen to hear the good news about our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray that we would be a church that has a desire for the gospel to reach the nations. 
I've said this before, but I'll tell you again. I am praying that God would send up some from our church who would go to the nations and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Specifically, I'm praying that God would raise up people from this church who would go to unreached people groups where there is little or no gospel presence so that they might have the joy of hearing about Jesus. I'm not just saying that theoretically, by the way. That really is my prayer. Maybe he's calling you to go. I pray that we would be a church that cares about those across the ocean. But I'm also praying that we would be a church that has a desire for all people in Fremont and the surrounding area to hear about Jesus too. People with different skin color and languages and political beliefs and socioeconomic standing. And that way I would say this, I'm praying that we would also be a church that has a desire not just to go across the ocean, but also across the tracks. That God would raise up church members who would have a desire for all people in Fremont and the surrounding area, regardless of background or culture, to hear the good news about Jesus. Because here's the thing, as we've been reminded throughout the book of Acts, as we see again in our passage today, the gospel message is for all people everywhere. But while that's true, there's something else we learned about the gospel in this passage too. That the gospel message will be embraced by some and rejected by others. That's the second thing. The gospel message will be embraced by some and rejected by others. Verses 24 to 28. Now remember, this is Paul talking, expounds the Old Testament. Then in verse 24, we read this. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will Listen. Now to be sure, in the context here of Acts 28, when Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, which he does in verses 26 and 27, he quotes that passage in reference to the Israelites' rejection of the gospel message. And in verse 28, he then talks about how subsequently the gospel went to the Gentiles because they would listen. They had ears to hear. But while Paul is painting with this really broad brush of Jewish rejection and Gentile acceptance in verses 26 to 28, it's clear even in this passage that not all Israelites rejected the message. It's also clear throughout the book of Acts that not all Gentiles accepted it. In other words, what we're saying is this, that we shouldn't say, well, all Israel rejected the gospel, all Gentiles accept it. The reality is that some Israelites accept, some reject, some Gentiles accept, some reject. And that way, verse 24 serves as a summary of how all people respond to the gospel. Again, verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. This idea of some being convinced, others disbelieving, is something we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Back in Acts 17, when Paul was preaching in Athens, some mocked the message, others wanted to hear more, and others believed. And in that, we're reminded that the gospel message will be embraced by some and rejected by others. And that reality, I think, should produce both humility and hopefulness. Humility for this reason. Think about this. If Paul was one of the greatest evangelists to ever live, I don't know that we know for sure he was, but I think we can make an argument. He was pretty effective. If Paul was one of the greatest evangelists to ever live, then the fact that many rejected Paul's message should humble us and tell us something about the gospel message. Namely, no matter how great of a presentation you give, it is still up to the Holy Spirit to let someone see the truth. We can present the gospel as clearly as possible, and we should strive to do so. But at the end of the day, it's a work of the Holy Spirit if anyone embraces the truth of the gospel. 
There's a few people in my life that I've shared the gospel with on multiple occasions, time and time again. And on some occasions when I've been sharing with them, I feel like I just didn't share it very clearly. I'm like, well, I get why they didn't believe that. But on other occasions, I feel like I've absolutely nailed the gospel presentation. And yet, even though I feel like I was as clear as I could possibly be, nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. And that's hard for me to understand. Because for me, the good news seems so obvious. I'm a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. All I have to do is turn to him in saving faith and I can be rescued. That seems like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't anyone want that message? But the only reason it feels like a no-brainer is because the Spirit has opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. So the fact that some reject the gospel message and others embrace it should humble us in that our gospel presentation, our words, will not save anyone. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But it should also humble us because if we've accepted the gospel message, then that too was a work of the Spirit. I've shared before that I became a Christian in the fall of 1999. Now, I'm sure that I'd heard about Jesus dying on the cross before that. But it wasn't until Mark Walter shared the gospel with me that fall at the student union at the University of Northern Iowa that I came to know Christ. So my question is, what changed that day? Was I just dumb before the fall of 1999 and all of a sudden I got really smart? Now, I feel confident that's not the answer, right? I was just as dumb before that as it was after. It wasn't me that changed that day. What changed that day was the Holy Spirit helping to understand, I'm a sinner, Christ is my only hope. And the fact that it was the Holy Spirit is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling that it was not us, it was the grace of God. And it's humbling because it means as we share the gospel, it'll have to be a work of the Holy Spirit too. But that necessary work of the Holy Spirit, while it may be humbling, I think also should make us hopeful. And it makes us hopeful, or it should make us hopeful, because every time we share the good news about Jesus, it's possible the Holy Spirit will do his thing and rescue someone. Because while some will reject the message, others will embrace it. Over sabbatical, I went and spent a week at Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. More specifically, one of my former students from my youth ministry days, Brandon Brinkley, he works at Redeemer, and I've been really encouraged by what God is doing through his ministry. And so I went to learn from him and some of his colleagues. And one of the things that Brandon does regularly is he goes to Costco or Walmart or the grocery store or the university campus, and he tries to strike up spiritual conversation with strangers with the hope of sharing the gospel. He calls it fishing in reference to Jesus calling us fishers of men. And so while I was in Lubbock, Brandon took me fishing to Costco. Now, I've done street evangelism or cold turkey evangelism before, but it had been a long time. And I'm just going to be honest here, I was really nervous. As we were walking to the store, I thought to myself, are people shopping at Costco really going to want to talk about Jesus in the Costco aisles? Isn't that kind of weird? That was my honest thought as I'm walking in. I'm a weirdo here. But Brandon is a former student of mine, and the last thing I could do is be a wimp in front of him. I didn't want to think that the guy who'd mentored him had now all of a sudden become a wimp, so I thought, I've got to do this. And so over the course of about an hour, we were able to start multiple conversations with people, and we even had three people agree to let us share the gospel message. We asked them, would you want to hear a presentation on the main theme of the Bible? They're like, yes. Three people, random people in Costco as other people are walking by. As this is happening, I'm thinking, is this really going on? Is this really taking place? But it was encouraging because people are hungrier for truth than we know. Now hear this, some will reject the message. In fact, that day, many did not want to talk. But some, by the grace of God, will have ears to hear. One of Brandon's teammates in ministry keeps track of some of their evangelism stats within their ministry they lead at Redeemer. 
In the last school year, he reports that they initiated about 2,500 spiritual conversations, just like the one Brandon and I had at Costco. In those 2,500 conversations, they were able to pray for the needs of about 2,000 people, just praying for their sick aunt or their own health, those types of things. They're able to share the gospel with close to 1,000. 62 of those people that they shared with were willing to get together and hear more about Jesus. They wanted to read the Bible. They said, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you. I'll, I'll join the Bible study. And 25 of them eventually professed faith in Christ. Now, you might hear that and think, well, they initiated 2,500 conversations and only 25 came to know Jesus. That's only 1%. First of all, if you hear that and you're thinking that way, you're good at math, congratulations, that's great. But second of all, maybe you're thinking, isn't that kind of discouraging? They shared 2,500 people, only 1% came to know Jesus. But think about this. They tried to start 2,500 conversations with totally random people in grocery stores or Costco or Walmart aisles, and through that, 25 people came into the kingdom. And who knows how many were impacted and went home and started thinking more about Jesus, and this was just another step along the way for them eventually coming to know Christ. Yes, some rejected the gospel. In fact, many did. But some believed. And to me, that's encouraging. If we sow the seed, if we sow the seed, some will reject the message. In fact, many will. But the Holy Spirit will open others' eyes, and they will believe. And the kingdom will advance. Which brings us to the third and final thing we see about the gospel message here in the book of Acts. And that's this. The gospel message cannot be stopped, and it cannot be chained. It cannot be stopped, and it cannot be chained. I, loved, I love how the book of Acts ends. Verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for two whole years, Paul was under house arrest. Most of the time, he's probably literally chained to a Roman soldier at his wrist. And yet he tells us here in verse 31 that he proclaimed the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I get the boldness part. I track where we're going there. I don't think there's much doubt that Paul was bold. He's welcoming all who came to him. He's preaching the gospel to them, the message of the kingdom, even as he's chained to a soldier. So I would say, yeah, the boldness part, that makes sense. But the without hindrance part, that intrigues me. Because it seems to me that Paul did have some hindrances. Being imprisoned seems like a hindrance. Awaiting trial to find out if you're going to be executed seems like a hindrance. Living under house arrest, chained to a soldier, seems like a hindrance. But apparently not to Paul. Because in Paul's mind, while he may have been chained, the word of God was not. In fact, Jim read a passage earlier from 2 Timothy 2. In that passage, Paul talked about his suffering for the gospel and being bound with chains as a criminal. But then he utters this very important phrase. He says, but the word of God is not bound. In the book of Acts, I think it's fair to say the disciples have faced some significant opposition. Some were killed, some were stoned, others beaten. They endured shipwrecks, imprisonments, all kinds of difficulty. And yet, throughout the book, the gospel of Jesus Christ has kept advancing. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and is evidenced here by the presence of the gospel in Rome. It's headed towards the ends of the earth. And the fact that the gospel advances in spite of such opposition 
And the fact that Paul can earnestly say, I preach the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance, reminds us of a simple reality. The gospel message cannot and will not be chained. Listen, I have no idea where we're headed as a country. I look at the news and I hear about things happening in corporate America. I read about the state of higher education in our country. I even hear from my own kids about things happening in schools or with their friend groups. And I'm concerned what it's going to be like to be a Christian in this country going forward. In particular, if we have the courage to teach what the Bible says on issues like marriage, sexuality, gender, I think it's going to be very difficult for us in the days to come. But here's the thing. Even if we end up bound as Christians, even if we lose our jobs or our livelihoods, the Word of God cannot and will not ever be bound. And as an example of that reality, I would simply point you to the country of Iran. I've shared a bit before about Iran, but I think it's worth sharing again because it's so encouraging. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a rigid Islamic regime in the country of Iran. Over the next couple of decades, Christians faced increased persecution and opposition. Missionaries kicked out, evangelism forbidden, Bibles outlawed. And yet somehow, in spite of all that opposition and persecution, the gospel started to grow. At the time of the Iranian Revolution, again 1979, it's estimated that there were 500, 500 Christians from a Muslim background living in Iran. Today, that number is estimated to be closer to 1 million. In fact, Iran has been described as the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world, which is pretty much the exact opposite of what you would expect, is it not? You would expect persecution increases, Bibles outlawed, evangelism forbidden, surely the church is just going to die out. But it's been the exact opposite in the country of Iran. And in that, we're again reminded the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be bound. So whatever happens in this country, we can take heart. The word of God is not going to be chained. They may take our lives, and contrary to what William Wallace may say, they may even take our freedom, but they cannot stop the word of God because the gospel message cannot be chained. So here's the question, though, for us. Will we join in this unstoppable movement of the gospel? Will we join in? The end of Acts 28 does seem a bit abrupt, if you think the book of Acts is about Paul or the apostles. But if you understand that the book of Acts is about the ongoing work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and his people to get the gospel to the end of the nations, then the ending actually makes perfect sense. It seems intentional. And on top of that, I would say it even seems like an invitation. Will we join Paul? Will we join the apostles? Will we, will we join the other faithful Christians throughout history who've proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Listen, if the work of Jesus through the Spirit is ongoing, and that's why Acts ends the way it does, because the mission is still going, and the question for us is, are we going to join in the mission? The mission of the book of Acts is still going. The question is, will we go on that mission? Now, I know in asking that question, sometimes that brings up feelings of guilt, but I promise you, I'm not asking that today to try to make us feel guilty. Instead, I'm simply trying to remind us that we have an opportunity to be a part of the most epic mission of all time. We get to share the best news that there ever has been or ever will be, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. You can have peace with God and eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's true for every person in this room, by the way. 
that if you turn to Christ, you can be rescued. It's also true that this is the news we get to share with people around us who desperately need to hear it. We get to be a part of the same mission that's described in the book of Acts, the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and his people. And that is pretty awesome. So listen, I know it's been a long journey through the book of Acts. I know the ending seems a bit abrupt, but let me simply remind you of something this morning. We have an opportunity to be a part of the great gospel mission, the gospel that is for all people everywhere, the gospel that some will reject but others will accept, and the gospel that cannot be chained and cannot be stopped. We get to be a part of that mission. The question is, will we join? Will we join? I hope and pray that the answer is yes. And if the answer is yes, then I also hope and pray that we would start to take concrete action. In fact, my challenge for you this morning is not just to think in general, oh yeah, I'll join the mission, but to actually think, what am I going to do this week in response to what we've read in the book of Acts to make sure that I'm part of the ongoing mission of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit and his people? We want to take practical steps, both as a church and as individuals, to make sure we are doing what happened in the book of Acts, and that is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So church, my invitation to you this morning is, will you join in? Will you look for opportunities to be a part of the greatest mission that has ever or will ever take place? Will you join the Holy Spirit in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people everywhere? I hope your answer is, yes, I will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and its encouragement to us. We thank you for the book of Acts. It has been a long journey, but actually there, there's, I think there's great value in just taking a long journey and being reminded of simple truths over and over and over again. You are at work. Your Holy Spirit is at work. The gospel is worth proclaiming. And God, I pray that we would do just that. We would proclaim the good news of the gospel to all people everywhere including even some in this room who need to hear it, but certainly our friends, our families, our neighbors, those across the tracks, those across the ocean too. Help us to have a desire to share the good news with all people everywhere. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we come to the end of the book of Acts and we talk about the ongoing mission of the church, it's appropriate that we would now turn our attention to the Lord's table because it's actually what Jesus did that motivates us to want to share with others. It's his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. This is what motivates us to want others to hear about Jesus. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. Now, we are changing things up a bit. It's been a long time since COVID, actually, that we've done things similar to what we're doing today. But in fact, we're not going back to the way we used to do things. I know we've been using the little cup for a while. We decided it was time to move on and to do something that's more reflective. That's the biggest thing we wanted to change. Taking with the little cups feels like we've lost some reflection time. And so what we want to do is give you space to reflect and think about Jesus' death, his body broken, his blood shed, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So what we've done this morning is we've set up five tables around the sanctuary. There's one here, one in the middle, one over by the piano, and then one in the back on the left and one in the back on the right by the sound booth. And so what we're going to ask you to do, Anna's going to come up here in a second, and she's going to play some music. During that time, you can just reflect on what Jesus has done. And then as you're ready, you can go ahead and head to any one of those tables. They're all the same. One of them does not have better items than the other. If you want to go shop around, you can do so. It'll probably be a waste of your time. They're all the same, I promise you. All right, and so what we're going to do is then we'll take those elements back with us and hold on to them, and then we'll take them together when enough time has passed. As always, I would say this. If you're not a believer, please do not come and partake of the elements today, but know that the gospel is freely offered to you. But if you are a believer, we would invite you to participate with us and to be reminded that Jesus' blood shed, his body broken, is our hope. By the way, 
This is the first time we've ever done it this way. It's possible it will be a gigantic train wreck. If that's the case, we will adjust, and next time we will not do it the same, all right? Be gracious with us. We're trying to figure out the best way to do this. We want to make sure that we're giving space for reflection, but we're just trying to figure out what's the best way we can do this. So this is an experiment. So join with me in experimenting, and by the grace of God, hopefully it'll be a blessing. So I'm going to pray, and then Anna will come up, and then again, whenever you're ready, go ahead and go to this table, and then we'll take the elements together here in a few minutes. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together here and take the Lord's Supper today, to be reminded that your blood was shed and your body was broken, and because of that, we have hope, and because we have that hope, we now have a desire to take the gospel to all people everywhere, to join in on the mission, to be a part of the Holy Spirit's work in proclaiming Jesus Christ to lost people. So God, please, please now help us to do this in a reflective way, thinking about what Jesus has done and being moved to worship. That's our hope here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.